The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1, which is where we'll be landing here in just a few moments. And today is a special day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day of Pentecost, and one of the things that we have become known for around here is at Maranatha, we celebrate the Jewish feasts. Now, as Christians, we remember that it was on Pentecost that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the early church to empower them to reach the lost. And as we get started... I believe that there are some, maybe even many in here tonight, who are about to experience a a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. There are people in here, I believe it, you're barely hanging on. You're hanging on by a thread, and you're just barely scraping by, and you're doing the best you can, living the Christian life in your own strength and in your own power, and God sent me here to tell you that what you need is a fresh dose of the ghost. (laughs) You need the Holy Spirit, and that's what Pentecost is all about. I saw this this week. The message of Bethlehem is is this. It's that God is with you. What a powerful and beautiful message that is, that God left heaven and came to this earth. And in the person of Jesus, he put on flesh and bones and communicated to the world that God is with us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the message of Bethlehem. Now, the message of Calvary is not only that God is with you, but Calvary moves beyond that, and it preaches this message. It tells us that God is for us. You say, how do I know that God is for me? Look to Calvary, and there see Jesus stretched out on the cross, paying for your sins and mine. It answers the question of whether or not God is for us once and for all. The message of Calvary is that God is for you even as the message of Bethlehem is that God is with you. But the message of Pentecost is that God wants to dwell in you. This is truly incredible. You see, Jesus never intended any of us to live the Christian life in our own strength. That's why he promised to send his Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon you, what he brings is fresh power so that you can live out God's will, so that you can defeat the enemy, and so that you can expand the kingdom of God here on earth. God wants to put his spirit in you, not just so that you can go to heaven, but so that he can bring heaven down to earth and then push it out on the people through you. No matter what you're facing today, God is calling you today to receive the promise of his spirit as a living reality, not just a theological concept, Not just something that you know, but something that you are walking in and experiencing. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, let me back up from that. And I want to pull the plane up to about 30,000 feet because some of you are new. And so you're not used to this, this idea that we celebrate the Jewish feasts. And I just want to address that for a moment. Why do we celebrate the Jewish feasts if we're not Jewish? Seems like a valid question, right? And here's, here's what I came up with as an answer. And I have this in our notes. The reason we celebrate the Jewish feasts at Maranatha is because we believe 
listen, that they reveal God's heart to us and that they unveil his plan for the world. So this is what the feasts are about. They reveal the heart of God and they unveil his plan for the world. Now, you may know this, you may not, but there are seven feasts that populate God's calendar. The first four are all clustered together and take place in the spring. And we just actually went through several of them. There's Passover, that's the first one. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then there's the Feast of First Fruits. <clears throat> and then 50 days after that, you have Pentecost, which we're going to be talking about here tonight. And then the other three feasts occur later on in the fall, and they are the Feast of Trumpets, which we're known for celebrating, the Day of Atonement, and then the last, the seventh, is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, here's what God spoke to Moses about the feast. Let's read this together out loud. This is, I believe, as well in your notes, and it's Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. Ready? Go. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. I just want to draw a couple of little points out from that verse. First of all, notice that the Lord calls these feasts my feasts. They're given to Israel, but they belong to the Lord. They're not just the feasts of Israel. They belong to God. And so when we study them, we learn about his heart. We learn about his character. We learn about his name. We learn about his nature. And so if you want to learn about God, one great place to start is by studying the feasts. Now, the word feast comes from the Hebrew word moed. Everybody say moed. Okay, good. You're learning Hebrew. Moed describes a fixed time or an appointment. We might describe Moed as a divine appointment. So God says, there are seven times throughout the year that I'm going to establish where I want to meet with my people. Now, the other word that he uses there, I have it underlined for you, is the word convocations. Now, that word in the Hebrew is mikra. Everybody say mikra. Very good. You guys are good. Now, this describes a public meeting or, or a rehearsal. That's interesting. Think about the way that we use rehearsals. If you're young, you're single, and you fall in love, and you become engaged, prior to the wedding day, you have the wedding rehearsal, where you kind of practice all the things that you'll be doing for real on the following day, right? And you learn where you're supposed to stand and who does what and when and where and all of that. And that is, according to God, the function that the feasts of Israel serve. They are dry runs of the real thing. They are rehearsals for the ultimate fulfillment. And what we see ultimately is when we come to the New Testament in Jesus, we get to see all of the feasts perfectly fulfilled. The feasts are the shadow. Jesus is the substance. So take Passover, for instance. You have the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that is applied to the doorposts of the home there in Egypt. It's a picture of Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. He is also our first fruits as he rose from the dead and conquered the grave. He is the first fruits of those who would follow after. If you put your faith in him, then you have the assurance that you will live forever with Jesus. But he's the first fruits. 
He's also our atonement, the one that brings God and man together, etc., etc. He is the fulfillment of every feast. And furthermore, what we see is with the first four, the ones that are clustered together that we just celebrated and will celebrate tonight, he fulfilled each one of them on the day. Now, for some of you, this is review, but like, just let that sink in. That's significant. He was crucified on the day of Passover. Not the day before, not the day after, but on the day of Passover, as the high priest was slitting the throat of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God, was being sacrificed on the cross for our sins. He was then buried on the day of unleavened bread. And then he rose from the dead on the day of first fruits, on the very day that they were celebrating the first fruits of the harvest, Jesus was rising from the dead. Then fast forward 50 days later, and the Spirit gets poured out on the day of Pentecost. Now, after Pentecost, this is interesting, there is the summer harvest. And so there's a gap between this feast and the next one, which doesn't happen till the fall. And this was the time when they, Israel would go out and they would gather the harvest. And that's also the season we find ourselves in. This is the church age. And for the last 2,000 years, God has been gathering his bride. He has been creating one new man made of both Jew and Gentile. And so you say, why is it he taking so long? And the answer is found in Peter, where he tells us that he's not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But I believe that we're drawing near to the day where that last person that God has appointed to get saved is going to come to faith. And when they do, we get to participate in the next celebration, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Bible talks about how the trump of God shall sound, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with the Lord in an event known as the rapture. So you might be here, and you might be the person that we're waiting on to get saved so we can all go to heaven. So if that's you, just take care of business right here and right now, because we're all waiting on you. Time's ticking. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? We blink, and we're already there. That's how fast it would be. And it could be today. And that, we'll celebrate that feast in the fall, the Feast of Trumpets. It's a great time. We pack this place out, and it's probably our biggest celebration. But all that to say, these, this, that's what's going on. But tonight, we get to celebrate pa Pentecost. So let's talk for a minute about Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is all about the early harvest. So it's the initial harvest. It's a great celebration throughout Israel. And it always occurs 50 days after Passover. So it always happens in late May or early June. In fact, the word Pentecost literally means 50. It's mentioned in five different places in the Old Testament. So Exodus 23 and 24, Leviticus 16, Numbers 28, and Deuteronomy 16. All right, so this is the early harvest. There are two harvests in Israel. The first one happens in late May, early June, and that's where they get the, the wheat, and then they have the whole summer harvest, and then they celebrate again in the fall. And Pentecost celebrated that early one. It was a pilgrim festival, which meant that 
Every able-bodied Jew who lived within a, a certain perimeter of Jerusalem was required by law to physically be in attendance there in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, which caused the, the city to swell to like three or four times its normal size. It also helps explain why there were so many people from so many different places that were there to hear Peter preach in Acts 2. Also, you should note this. Every year at this time, because the Jews follow a Bible reading plan, so every Jew on the day of Pentecost is reading through the same thing. And you want to know what it is? The book of Ruth. A beautiful love story. Ruth is this outsider. She is this Moabitess. But she comes to believe in the God of Israel. And she returns from her land of Moab to, with Naomi back to Israel. And God moves in a beautiful way. And she captures the heart of this charming guy named Boaz. And the whole thing is an illustrative picture of the kind of relationship that God wants with his church. But beyond that, you should note this. The whole story takes place against the backdrop of the early summer harvest. And then one more thing to note about Pentecost is this. It's the day that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. They're on top of Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning and the mountain shaking and quaking and the fire of God falling. And, and there, God hands Moses these tablets of stone, and that happened on Pentecost. And one of the ways that they would commemorate this event is the high priest would take two loaves of freshly baked bread, and he would wave these loaves before the Lord. And they were supposed to be pictures of the, the tablets of stone. So what does all of that or any of that have to do with us? And I'm so glad that you asked that question, because it speaks to us of the necessity of the Spirit. Let me explain. Begin reading with me there in Acts chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 3. It says, after his suffering, he, that is Jesus, presented himself to the disciples, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Everybody say, wait. Wait for the gift of my Father, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. So this is just 
an incredible scene. I mean, I can't wait to get to heaven and watch this on Netflix or YouTube or GodTube or whatever they have up there, because this is just a really cool scene in sheer entertainment value. Just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he, gra- he grabs, he gathers his disciples, and he instructs them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, and that when he comes, they'll be empowered, and then they're to go out and be witnesses of him throughout the whole earth. As soon as Jesus says that, the Bible tells us that he lifts up, he levitates up off the ground and slowly ascends into heaven, and you can imagine their jaws dropping as their eyes bulge and they look up and they're watching Jesus just ascend into heaven. He gets smaller and smaller and eventually he becomes obscured by the clouds and disappears and who knows how long they're standing there just staring up at the sky, waiting. (laughs) And before long, two angels, men dressed in white, come and stand beside them. I wonder if they kind of joined in, looking up, you know, looking down. Looking up, maybe they looked over and looked back up and then wait. And they say, hey, guys, the same Jesus, the same Jesus that lifted up off the Mount of Olives, he's going to come back in like manner. And the disciples, I mean, they've just watched Jesus. He'd spent 40 days with them, the Bible tells us, proving to them over and over and over again that he had truly, in fact, risen from the dead. It wasn't just a hallucination or anything like that. And he proved it by eating a lot of meals with them, which gets me excited because it assures us that we're going to eat in our new glorified bodies. There won't be any calories. I'm, I'm guessing that you know, the things that are healthy for us in heaven will include things like cake and ice cream and Brussels spouts that will be no more. Amen to the glory of God. So Jesus eats with them. He ascends into heaven. And I imagine the disciples like, what are we going to do? They're staring at one another in wide-eyed wonder and disbelief. What did they just witness? What were they supposed to do? I mean, Jesus told them that they were to wait for the Spirit, but he really didn't give them much more than that. They didn't have anything that we might think one needs in order to be successful or build a church. They didn't have any buildings. They had no budgets. They had no blueprints. They had no bulletins. They had no band. They had no channels of communication. They had no leadership structure. They had no detailed structure. All they had were Jesus' instructions to wait for the Holy Spirit. And as soon as he comes, go. That was it. How were they supposed to know when the Spirit came? Jesus didn't tell them even what they were supposed to look for. What would that experience be like? He didn't tell them. And besides, all of this would have been brand new to them. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon certain individuals. And you read about kings in particular and priests being anointed by God to fulfill their God-given office. And there are other rare occasions where the Spirit of God would come upon an individual but only for a time or for an appointment or for a calling or for a short season. He would never come upon them and remain with them. But here Jesus seems to be implying that the Spirit will come and empower you to be witnesses of him all throughout your life. This is a different thing. And as a pastor, I'm struck by this thought that here you have the early church, They didn't have any of the stuff that we think would be necessary to be successful. And yet somehow, 
they managed to, within a generation or so, turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That wasn't their own thing that they put out there on social media. That was what their critics and their enemies said about them. Those who've turned the world upside down have come here, too. In fact, in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, one of the things he said was this. This is Colossians 1.6. He said, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, even as it is in Colossae. How did they do that? There's only one logical explanation. And it's the one we're reading about right here. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And the key role that the Holy Spirit played in the lives of these first century Christians, it's unmistakable. You can track it and you can trace it all throughout the book of Acts. His name shows up 56 times in the book of Acts. By the way, that's more than his name shows up in the three synoptic gospels combined. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. But it might just as well be described as the acts of the Holy Spirit, because throughout the book, he can be seen activating people and leading people and guiding people and inspiring them, illuminating, empowering, equipping, saving, and revealing his will to his people so that they could go out and fulfill their mission and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I just want to draw this out just for a little bit, because here's a major point that I'm making. Because you see here that Luke goes to great lengths to impress upon us, his reading audience, that everything that we read about in this book, it happened principally because these men and these women had surrendered their hearts and their lives to the Holy Spirit. They had been filled with him, and they were living out of that anointing. Listen to this. On the day of Pentecost, which we'll read about in just a moment. Luke tells us that Peter stood up and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to speak to them. That's Acts 4.8. What a difference a day makes. The same Peter who had been cowering in fear and hiding behind a locked door, now that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's boldly preaching to the very crowd of people who only a week previously had crucified Jesus or 50 days previously had crucified Jesus. When the believers were threatened with persecution, Luke tells us that they gathered together and they prayed. This is Acts 4.31. And it says the place where they were assembled together was shaken. That's the kind of prayer meeting I want to have, where you pray and the ground shakes. And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is they spoke the word of God with boldness. When they needed help in the church, as the church is busting at the seams, and they need help distributing food to these widows, they gathered all the people, the church, and they said, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom you might appoint over this business. That's Acts 6.3. And so they went out. And it says, they chose Stephen, a man full of the, full, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, Acts 6.5. Okay, I'm reading all these verses to drive home this point. These verses and these examples clearly show us that the early church saw it as vital that they be led by and filled with the Spirit of God. Everything that happened happened because of the Spirit. And guess what? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he moved by his Spirit back then, it's how he's going to move today. 
Through the prophet Zechariah, God spoke these words, and I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That was good, but I think we can do better. Let's try it one more time. Ready? Go. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Man, how are we going to get things done? How are we going to win our world for Christ? Darkness is encroaching at every corner. You don't have to look hard to see that there is a spiritual battle raging in the heavenly realms all around us. So what can we do to advance the kingdom? We need the Spirit. But I'm afraid in the modern church, the role of this Holy Spirit has been largely ignored, downplayed, replaced, and in some cases, even rejected. Instead of relying on the Spirit, there are a lot of churches out there that have turned to their own clever strategies, their own fancy programs, their own slick, innovative ideas and compelling sermons, and they think that's what's going to change the world. And what we really need is a better light system or a better sound system, or if we had this or that, and then we could reach the world. What a poor substitute they are. Far too much of the church has replaced programs for real power business for God's blessing, activity for absolute dependence, and religion for a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then we sit around and we wonder why we don't see the things happen in our midst like they happened back then. Why aren't we seeing the miracles? Why aren't we seeing the same kind of conversions? I know this is heavy, but bear with me. We're going to turn the corner, I promise. A.W. Tozer once leveled this stinging indictment against the modern church. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. Ouch. If the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference immediately. You know, back east, if you've ever traveled there or maybe you lived there, they have these ice storms that are common. And what happens is the ice forms on the power lines. And, and oftentimes, it either forms on the power lines or on the branches of trees. And they fall over and they knock down the power lines. Well, anyways, after one of those common storms, those ice storms in a particular area, there were a number of power outages. And a radio host came on the radio to announce the following. He said this, the following churches will be closed today due to a lack of power. Ouch. <laughs> I wonder how many churches that could be said of today. They look nice on the outside. Beautiful buildings, bulletins busting at the seams, but no real power. The Apostle Paul, he said that one of the defining characteristics of the last days is that people would cling to a form of godliness but deny its power. That's 2 Timothy 3.5. And let me just share with you, one of my greatest fears for us as a church is that we would become one of those churches 
that has all of the polish but none of the power. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, what is needed today is a fresh infilling of the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in playing church. I want something real. I want the Spirit of God. And it's the only way that we're ever going to fulfill the Great Commission and share the gospel with the whole world. Jesus said that you'll know the spirit comes because you'll be endued with power. Ooh. Yeah, somebody just said it. Come on, where are my Greek students at? In the house today. Dunamis, the Greek word for power. The same word from which we get our words dynamite or dynamic. And if there is a lack of power in your life today, there is an opportunity for you for fresh power. God wants to fill you with his dunamis. It speaks of power, ability, strength, might. And if you want to participate in the harvest, which, by the way, is why you're still here. We're not here just so we can worship. We're going to do that in heaven. And the worship up there, and we have a great worship team. But there's better worship in heaven. We're going to do that in heaven. But one thing that we can do here that we won't be able to do there is bring in the harvest. It's the season of harvest, and we need the power of God to do that. God's work must be done in God's strength. And Jesus understood how essential the spirit was to the fulfillment of the mission he had just handed his disciples, which is why he stressed, don't go out in your own strength. You guys will make a mess of things so quickly. You better not leave Jerusalem, Peter. I'm telling you, you stay there. and wait. So that's what they did. Look at verse 12. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, which is a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. I wonder if it was the same room where they shared the Last Supper with Jesus, where they shared communion. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So listen, here's the point. Prayer releases the power. It says there that they all all joined together in verse 14, constantly in prayer. If reliance on the Holy Spirit is one of the hallmarks and defining characteristics of the early church, then prayer has to be the other one. Prayer is all over the book of Acts. In fact, you can't hardly read a chapter of this book without running into it or where you won't find it mentioned. The early church prayed before making big decisions. When they faced persecution, they prayed for guidance. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for miracles. They prayed for power. And here we find them praying for the Holy Spirit. I think the application for us is obvious. If we want to see the power released, then it starts with a posture of prayer. We need to be a praying church if we want to be a power church. Somebody say amen. Let me just shamelessly plug our Tuesday morning prayer gatherings at 7 a.m. in our bookstore. If you want to come to the real powerhouse of this church, join us there. You won't be disappointed, I promise. So they pray constantly. They're gathered together. Now, flip the page and look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, finally, we're at Pentecost, they were all what? All together in one place. So Jesus was with them for 40 days. Then he ascends up into heaven. 
Pentecost takes place 50 days after Passover. So there's a gap of 10 days. And what's happening during that 10-day window? The church is gathered in one place, in one accord, with one heart, lifting up prayers to God. Wow, I love this. This is what the Spirit of God finds irresistible, where believers are gathered together in unity, a unified church where Christ is magnified and prayer is ascending is a church where the power of God is unleashed and flowing. And you say, well, I, I would be more unified, but they're troubling and they're hard and they're difficult. Let me just remind you of something obvious. Unity starts with you. <laughs> it does. It starts with the letter U, but it also starts with you. Don't wait for someone else to take the first step. Don't wait for someone else to extend forgiveness. Don't wait for someone else to be the bigger person. In order for us as a church to experience unity, it is something that you, meaning we, will have to step into and walk in. That's what's going to bring the spirit. They were all together in one place. Lifting up the one name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. And verse 2 goes on to say this. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. I love this idea that the first time the Spirit of God falls, it's on a gathering of believers, not just an individual, but God comes to fill his body. And they began to speak to one another in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I want to paint a picture here, because in some sense, what we see described here is a mirror of what God did 1,500 years earlier on top of Mount Sinai as he was giving the law to Moses. But there are also several notable differences. For instance, when God met with Moses that day, the people were driven away in fear as God's spirit came down. But on this day, the people are drawn in by the presence of the spirit of God. On the first Pentecost, fire consumes the mountain. But on this Pentecost, fire fills the believers. On the first Pentecost, God wrote his will on tablets of stone. But on this Pentecost, under the new covenant, God writes his will on the hearts of men. Picture that priest waving the bread before the Lord as an offering. How did the stone become bread? Jesus is the bread of life, who perfectly fulfilled all of those 10 commandments for us in order that he might come into the home of our hearts and eat with us and dwell with us and dine with us and live with us. I love it. So the, the fire was one thing that happened, and then the wind was another. It wasn't just any wind. The Bible describes it as something like a mighty rushing wind. And that's a beautiful analogy, one that you see carry its way throughout Scripture. Oftentimes, the Spirit of God is likened to wind. In fact, the Hebrew words for breath, spirit, and wind, they're all one and the same. It's the Hebrew word ruach. Everybody say ruach. 
We're just learning languages here tonight. In the beginning, Genesis 1, where God's spirit hovered over the waters. The spirit was moving over the water. It was the ruach, the wind. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us that God breathed into Adam's nostril, and he became a living soul. And so too, in John 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples, and they received the spirit of God. So you have the fire falling. You have the wind of God blowing. And then there are gifts imparted to these believers. In this case, it was the gift of tongues, the first use and mention of this gift in the Bible. The word in Greek is glossa. And it speaks of various tongues and dialects. And God used it as a sign and a witness to those who were in attendance celebrating the Feast of Passover. And they gathered, and some people scoffed and mocked. By the way, in every movement of God, there will be those who stand on the outside with arms folding, mocking what God is doing. They say, they're drunk. This is lunacy. Those people are crazy. You're going to have your critics if you're going to fall in love with Jesus. But then there's also an incredible move of God where people are drawn in, and what they hear is their own, in their own tongue, where they're from. They're hearing these disciples speak the wonderful works of God, and, and it is one of the manifestations of the Spirit, the gift of tongues. And there are different kinds of tongues. There is this expression where you actually speak a language that you've never learned. Jimmy, who's one of our worship leaders, he has an incredible story of how he was in Israel on one, uh, a tour there one time. And he said they had this incredible tour. It was a smaller group. And on the last night, they were just ministering to one another. And their tour guide, the bus driver, wasn't a Christian. But he took part in their gatherings. And, and this woman, you know, as they're sharing their experiences of Israel, she says, I just feel impressed of my spirit. And this is so out of character for me. But I feel like the Lord wants me to pray over you, Mr. Bus Driver. I don't know his name. And he wants me to do it in tongues. Would that be OK? And he's like, OK. And he lets her. And Jimmy was there. He can tell you about this. He says she begins to pray in her prayer language, but he only hears Hebrew. And he goes, I know exactly what you were saying. You were speaking in perfect Hebrew, and you were talking about God and how good he is. That bus driver gave his life to Jesus a couple of months later. Amazing. So God can do that. But it's not the only manifestation of the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that you're not filled with the Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. And the proof of that is Jesus, who, when he was baptized, came up out of the water. The Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and remained with him. But he didn't speak in tongues. So you may or may not speak in tongues when you're filled with the Spirit. But the point is, there was this huge gathering of people. They hear these disciples speaking about God in their native languages. And then Peter seizes the moment. He begins to preach boldly. And that day, 3,000 people give their lives and hearts to Jesus. On the day that Moses received the law, 3,000 die. But on the day that the Spirit gets poured out, 3,000 are brought into the church. And she is launched into this movement that we are the recipients of their efforts to this day. God is good. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So. How do you receive the Spirit? Because that's what we need to close with tonight. We desperately need him. We need him to accomplish this God-given task, this mission, the Great Commission, as it's known. We need him to help us pray. We don't know how to pray as we ought, the Bible says. We need him so that we can get along with one another. Amen. 
We need him so that we can be effective witnesses. We need him so we can be better husbands, better employees, better bosses, better wives, better children, better grandparents. We need him so we can live the Christian life. And that's why the spirit was given. He is the spirit of God the spirit of truth, the spirit of witness, the spirit of conviction, the spirit of power, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of light, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of help, the spirit of liberty, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, the spirit of promise, the spirit of love, the spirit of meekness, the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of grace, the spirit of glory, and the spirit of prophecy. Do you need the spirit tonight? Because I know I do. Man, I need a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer here, you already have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You don't need more of the Spirit. What is needed is that he get more of you. Does that make sense? What's needed is that you surrender more of yourself to him, that you go all in. And Jesus said this. He said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So Father, as we now move into a time of ministry, would you begin to blow through the ruach of your spirit in this place? Jesus, we invite you here. We know that you're here right now. So we just pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come in fire. Come and move. Come and fill, empower, equip, and anoint. Let me invite you, if you want the Holy Spirit, would you just raise your hand up high? I want to lead you in a prayer. If you want him to fill you afresh and anew, if you want a power encounter, if you want a fresh dose of the ghost, if you want to surrender more of yourself, if you want all of him to invade all of you, raise your hand up high. Praise the Lord for those whose hands are lifted high. Let me invite you to join me in a prayer. Say, dear Jesus, fill me with the gift of your Holy Spirit. Equip me. Enable me. Empower me to live for you, to love the world to win the lost, to walk in holiness. Jesus, give me your Holy Spirit. In your name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.